The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have the apostles brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing him. So they took his his advice 
And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, the disciples, the apostles did, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. My siblings and I have a competition. At the beginning of winter, it's this. Who will be the first to touch snow? And we have to document it. We have to take a picture of it. We have to picture with our hands touching the snow and text it to our siblings. I was the first. I did it. I touched snow first. I wasn't this year. And then at the first sign of spring, our competition continues, and it's this. Who will be the first to sight a robin? To see a robin in the yard. Take a picture, send it out, you win. First sign of spring. Spring is my favorite season of the year because it offers such a contrast to what has been going on. The gray becomes green. A blanket of cloud that hangs over us for six months is lifted to reveal the blue that's been behind them all along. Going to work and coming home in darkness. <laughs> slowly dawns into 16 hours of day that never seems to end. The smell in the air in spring is even different. Fresh, cleaner, crisper. Even small group gatherings, I've noticed as a pastor for years, become chattier in March and April as homes are filled with more energy and more vitality. Earth is becoming a heaven once again as winter turns to spring. We see it in the signs and you see the same expression used to describe what's happening in Acts chapter 5. The physician and the author of Acts, Luke, he declares that because of the name of Jesus, earth is becoming a heaven once again. Earth is being healed of its long-suffered winter. There are signs and there are wonders, verse 12 declares. Signs, incredible events like lame men walking, physically ill, becoming well, mentally ill, now clear-headed, are indicators that God is on the move in making earth a heaven once again. There's wonders. Wonders are those normal laws of nature being broken as foreign tongues are being spoken by the uneducated, as fishermen are firsthand witnesses standing before temple councils of a dead man no longer being dead, and prison doors are being flung open by angels. Wonders going on. See the signs, the wonders that spring, that heaven is here again. So what's the problem with all this, high priests? What's the problem with all this posse of Sadducees? What's your problem? They are filled with jealousy over these signs of spring, these signs of heaven. Why are these men so enraged to the point that they want Jesus and now His followers killed? The problem is simple. The problem is self. More specifically, the problem is self-refusing sacrifice. Self-refusing sacrifice. That's the problem. What is sacrifice? 
Sacrifice is the decision to lay down one's life for the sake of someone or something greater than self. That's sacrifice. Laying one's life down for the sake of something greater than yourself. Sacrifice is the sign of godly love. You want to look for any sign of God's love, it has to have sacrifice attached to it somewhere. So look in your marriage. You're probably going to find it. Look in being a parent. You're probably going to find it. But a self which refuses sacrifice, that's the sign of ungodly, anti-Christ love. A self which refuses sacrifice. So what is the high priest's problem? Self-refusing sacrifice. What is our problem? Self-refusing sacrifice. The high priest and the Sadducees, they don't want to lose their position. They don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their prestige among men. And we refuse sacrifice too, like they do. But oftentimes for us, it looks maybe a little bit different. When someone maybe questions us, and we have to appear smart so as not to lose their respect, instead of sacrificing ourselves and saying, I I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, we have to pretend we know the answer, appear smart. Or when my wife has worked a really hard day and we lay down in bed, turn the lights off, and across the hall we hear, Mommy, Mom, Mom, and I pretend to be asleep. <laughs> Self-refusing sacrifice. When in a conflict where we will not, we will refuse to accept any degree of responsibility for what's going on in the conflict, that's a self-refusing sacrifice. When we insert that quick bit of question mark into someone's character so that we feel a little bit better about ourselves, that's a self-refusing sacrifice. And so the high priest and us, we're going to fight tooth and nail to keep the self-preserved, even if it means sacrificing altars, sacrificing others, excuse me, on the altar of our own self-rightness or self-righteousness. But we have to contrast that with what's going on in the church, the sign of what's going on in Jerusalem in the church, because there's no signs of self in this church. They are unanimous in their worship. They are unanimous in their wealth. They are unanimous in their teaching and their preaching, saying all is Christ's, all is His, none of it's mine. Signs of sacrifice in the church. How can they say this? How can they live this? How can we say this? How can we live this? It's this way. Only Christ's sacrifice through suffering can save this world. That's what they believed, and that's what we're called to believe. Only Christ's sacrifice through suffering can save this world. So the church must be the sign of the cross to the world. The church must be the sign of the cross to the world. Friends, what does it look like for the church to be the sign of the cross to this world? Did you grow up Catholic? I did. We did the sign of the cross all the time. Name the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're going to use it as our example and as our illustration for what it means for the church to look like Christ's sacrifice through suffering. The first is this. The church offers the relief, the covering of Christ's cross, of Jesus' cross. 
which means churches are known for being a place where transformation and change occurs. Churches are known for being a place where heaven invades our earth, where sinner and Savior meet. There are signs all around this room, I can attest as a pastor, signs all around this room of the cross of Jesus bringing healing to a wound when nothing else could heal it. There are signs all around this room of bringing hope to an addict or a lost soul from the cross when no one else would bring hope. But the relief of Jesus' arms outstretched in extending forgiveness for sin has an ask to it. Jesus says, as we look to the sign of the cross, He says, come and die as well. Die to yourself. Sacrifice yourself and live for Me. That cost has most people in Jerusalem, the Scripture says in the beginning of verse, or chapter 5, not daring to come too close to the church. This church is meeting in Solomon's porch, and there are people not daring to come near. Why? Because there's dangerous things happening. You're going to ask me to die there. I don't want to do that. I'm going to stay clear of that church. I'm going to stay clear of that place. So what they do instead, sick and suffering are left out on the curb. It's really a strange picture, but they're left out on the curbs between the place where Peter and the apostles are staying and the temple so that they can get the cure of what's going on in this church but not have to inquire about the cost. So there's people that are staying away from the church, but who is coming? Scripture says, verse 14, there there are men and women who are entering into this temple place, uh uh-oh, and finding healing. And the clue is in verse 14. Who are these people that are actually coming in, that are daring to come in? Verse 14 says, believers. Another way to translate that word is trusters. Those who trust. Those who trust that their own methods of relief, like superstitious shadows, are not working to heal them. Maybe Peter's shadow will fall. That's just superstition. No, these are those who are trusting that the shade of the cross itself and alone will be what relieves them. Trusters, believers, are those who, when God's anger over your sin burns hotter than the sun itself, know that I have to trust that anger to fall on Jesus and I can find relief in its shadow. In order for that to happen, we have to reject any trust in ourselves and hide completely in the shadow of the cross. The cross is not partially to be hidden behind. It demands that we hide our entire selves in Christ. One of my son's friends just came back from Florida, and the boy is paler than me, fair of skin. And on their first day in Florida, he thought his hat's brim would shield him from the sun's, Florida sun's strong rays. <laughs> there are burn, red burn marks on the sides, both sides of his face where the hat didn't cover him. What he needed was complete shading. What he needed was where you couldn't see him any longer. He was completely covered. How do we offer this relief church on a day-to-day level, this complete covering of Christ to the world? It's first by hiding yourself fully in Christ. 
Wearing a cap that says Christian will get you burned. Wearing all of him means you are no longer concerned what people say of you. You're sacrificing that. You're only concerned with what they say of him. Hiding behind all of the cross means you aren't just confessing the sins that are obvious to you. You're asking God to show you mercy for the sins you don't see and the sins that are not obvious to you. Hiding fully in him. But offering this relief is also asking other people the question. As we go out of this this place, asking other people the question, where are you going for relief? How's it working for you? the place that you're going for relief. The way in which we love those who are in pain and finding no relief in their shadows and their superstitions is by not giving them quick advice like, hey, have you tried getting more sleep? Hey, the Whole30 diet is amazing. It will help you like nothing else could. No, that's not what we do. We offer relief through word and deed ministry. Maybe the shade of your hand becoming Christ's hand, stroking someone's hurting hand. Soft and tender. But then, attributing that relief and that shade that you're providing to the Christ who saved you from melting in the sun. One sign of the cross in the church is us offering the relief of Christ and the cross. Another sign is the church obeying the call of Jesus' cross. We see this in verses 17 to 32. The call of the cross is a call to obedience. Peter, the rest of the apostles, are raising outrage among the temple officials who are just hot with jealousy. That's what it says. They're filled with jealousy. They want what the disciples have. What do they want? They want the Spirit's power. They want that power. They are hungry for that power. But they don't want what the call of Christ requires, which is a death to themselves. So the high priests, the Sadducees, use what earthly power they have to put a stopper to the Spirit's call on the the apostles' life to preach. They lock the apostles up, make a public shame out of them, put them in prison, give their reputation, drag it through the mud, and make them look like criminals. But a messenger, an angel of the Lord, unlocks the doors very quickly, miraculously. What a wonder. We don't give much on it. He doesn't say much about it. Just like, the angel unlocked the door and on your way. He says to him, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The temple duel, if you will, between the apostles and the priests is like the disciples are shouting. It's like they're going, spring is here. Spring is here. Look, 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 look. It's spring. It's spring. The crocuses are coming out. Look at the buds on the trees. Spring is here. Jesus is working. While the temple officials are trying to unsuccessfully mask what's clearly going on around them by like stepping on the ground all the crocuses or pulling them out of the ground or pulling all the buds off the tree and they can't do it. They're just like, no, it's not. No, it's not happening. No, it's not happening. And it just keeps happening around them. And they know, these temple officials know that their power is fading. Their position, their time is coming to an end. Their positions are going away. But they refuse to come and die to themselves. They hold their shaky ground even when all the evidence, like missing prisoners, is pointing to a power greater than themselves. They refuse it. And the apostles, after being brought before the council, this is the second time, 
heed the call of the cross to lay down their lives for the sake of the one who laid down his. The temple officials say, we charged you, we told you, do not use his name. But because of your teaching, this whole city is talking about Jesus. And they reveal, actually, in their words, the hope and the heart of anyone who obeys the call of the cross. They say to Peter and the apostles, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. (laughs) There is no truer statement for anyone who is obeying the call of Christ. The church wants as many people as possible to have the blood of Jesus on them. Because of the relief it offers. Yeah, yeah, that's what we want. We want his blood on you. Because it's the only way in which for your world to be changed from what C.S. Lewis says, always winter and never Christmas, to spring again. That's what's going to do it. Jesus, his name. And Peter and the apostles respond with the call, the sacrificial call. We must obey God, not men, not you. Peter continues to put responsibility on the leaders. This Jesus whom you killed, you're guilty of this, was raised and lifted up. He's proclaiming to them, there's a changing of the temple guard here. You priests, you've been released from your duties. And right now, Peter obediently declares, they're standing outside of the relief of the cross. He says, the Father made Jesus the leader Another word for author. He made Jesus the Savior to Israel. Jesus is the one in charge here. So that Israel, the people of God, could turn from their sin and receive God's mercy. That's the call of the cross. That's the mark of obedience. Not your robes, priests. Not your self-righteousness, priests. We are witnesses, Peter says, to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him, not you who listen to the call of Jesus and lay down their lives to Christ. Peter's language puts the council outside of God's protection of his people. And even outside the temple, he's saying to the temple leaders, as he says, the Holy Spirit has left the temple and made his way into obedient people, people who heed the call of Jesus, people who speak the name of Jesus. That's why when the temple officials in verse 33 hear this, they were enraged. They were cut in half with anger, is the literal translation, and wanted to destroy them, to annihilate them, to execute them then and there. The call of Christ to come and die is only possible because the caller Jesus goes before us. The apostles now knew that God could save them from the world's clutches anytime and anywhere. The unlocking of the prison gates, it's a sign. I've got you, apostles. I'm going to take care of you. But more than that, the gates of hell being overcome by Jesus' resurrection were the confidence that they needed to follow the call, even when the call of obedience meant they're standing in front of guys who could kill them, who could execute them right then and there. God's with us. God is with us. He's made it very clear He's with us. Ken Hughes writes of this confidence that the apostles have. If church traditions are correct, friends, Matthew knew the reality of God's going before him when he suffered by the sword. 
So did Mark when he died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke experienced the same when he was hanged on a large olive tree in Greece. It was John's realization when he was scarred in a cauldron of boiling oil and lived his last days banished on an island. So it was with Peter as he was crucified upside down in Rome. James as he was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the less when he was thrown from the high pinnacle and beaten to death with a club. Philip when he was hanged. Bartholomew when he was scourged and beaten until he died. Andrew when he was bound to a cross and preached at the top of his voice to his persecutors until they perished. Thomas, who was run through with a lance. Jude, who was killed by executioner's arrows. Matthias, who was stoned and then beheaded. If Jesus goes before us, there is nowhere we are unwilling to go if he leads us. How? Because Jesus Christ outlived the curse of the cross. You see this in the wise words of all the people in the temple at the time. Excuse me. You see this in the wise words of this man, Gamaliel. He's a Pharisee. And his logic is airtight. As he convinces the temple officials, let the wave of Christ ride itself out. You'll see if it's from God by how long it lasts. He uses specific examples of these cult leaders, like Theudas and Judas, or David Koresh, we could say. They're flashes in the pan. If this man's plan is, if Jesus' plan is man's plan, it's going to fall, it's going to fade away. But if this power you see is from God, you're going to be like a pebble trying to dam up the Atlantic Ocean. The apostles, they're released, but not after a bloody beating. And another order they're given to keep the name of Jesus off their lips. But look what it does to their spirits. Because Christ outlived the curse of the cross, they can walk away singing. As the blood drips from their brows, drips from their backs, what are they doing? They're rejoicing. It is well. They're singing. It is well with our souls. What can wash away our sin? They're singing. They're having so much joy because it was not their name they were being mistreated and shamed for. It was because of Jesus' name. Who are we, little us, that we could actually taste and picture and experience a little bit of what you did for us? They knew this name of Jesus was victorious, but the victory came through sacrifice, through suffering, the sign of suffering is a sign of spring, and they were privileged enough to share in the sufferings as Christ was willing to join them in theirs. So louder came off their lips the name of Jesus, the springtime of their souls. He'd come through with resurrection. Death didn't stop him. And so the relief, that resurrection life that they would preach at any cost, they were relieved to go into hard situations where they could die. Because what could man do to them? that God himself hadn't undone. Friends, we have not seen in our day any degree close to this kind of suffering, the persecution of Christians. Friends, we have smaller sufferings, but what do we do with those? Oh, <laughs> we just complain. Oh, it's, I guess it's my cross to bear. If our suffering is truly connected to the name of Jesus then let what comes off of our lips be singing the most up-tempo, upbeat song of the saints. I'll close with this quote from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. 
And may it give you comfort in where right now that the Lord may be calling you to sacrifice and to suffer. Jesus knows our sorrows, not merely as He knows all things, but as one who has been in our situation and who, though without sin Himself, endured when upon earth inexpressibly more for us than He will ever lay upon us. He has set apart, he has set apart poverty, pain, disgrace, temptation, death, by passing through these states. And when whatever state His people, His church is in, they may by faith have fellowship with Him in their sufferings. And He will by sympathy and love have fellowship and interest with them in theirs. Only Christ's sacrifice through suffering can save this world. So the church must be the sign of the cross to this world. In the name of the Father who had the relief plan of the cross, the Son who obediently responded to the call, and the Holy Spirit who gave Him power to go to the cross and who gave Him breath to be risen from the dead.